Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll turn our attention to the health care provisions in the House-passed version of the Build Back Better Act. These include expanded premium subsidies for marketplace plans purchased under the Affordable Care Act, a new Medicare hearing benefit, and price negotiation for Medicare pharmaceuticals. Our guest is Josh Gordon, Director of Health Policy at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Tori Gorman, our Concord Coalition Policy Director, will join the conversation. Prior to joining the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, uh, Josh Gordon was a policy and communications consultant and a senior healthcare policy fellow at the Progressive Policy Institute. And before that, he spent 18 years as policy director at some organization called the Concord Coalition. So I'm very privileged today to have the last two, the reigning policy director and the prior policy director of the Concord Coalition with us on this program. Josh and Tori, welcome back to Facing the Future. Nice to be back. Well, uh, so the BBBA is, uh, is now moving to the Senate, and many of its key provisions are going to be subject to renegotiation, I suppose, as uh, the, uh, the president and Senator Schumer try to make sure that they have the 50 votes to get the thing uh, passed. And some of the bill's provisions um, that might come under scrutiny are, are in the health care area. Uh, so we want to talk about those. And Josh, just to sort of set the stage, uh, if you could uh, remind our listeners approximately how much of the federal budget is already devoted to health care. So a little under 20 percent of the federal budget uh, is spent on health care, either for seniors or um, through the Affordable Care Act exchanges uh, or Medicaid and then the smaller programs like the veterans and federal employee benefits, et cetera. And, uh, and so, you know, there's a, there's a, this is obviously a, a very, very big bill here and there's a lot of stuff in it in the Build Back Better Act. A lot of it does have to do with healthcare and it depends on how you categorize things, but could you briefly go through, not in any great detail, but just kind of to set the stage, uh, what are the major healthcare provisions in the bill? The major provisions are an extension of Affordable Care Act um, enhanced subsidies. Um, they were extended in the kind of initial um, COVID relief legislation, uh, and they'll kind of be um, extended through 2025 as it's currently written. Also, um, the BBB fills in uh, the Medicaid expansion for the 12 states that haven't expanded Medicaid, this legislation will extend Affordable Care Act subsidies to the people in those states that are 
that, that don't qualify right now for ACA subsidies because their income is too low. They would normally qualify for Medicaid expansion. They don't, so now they'll be eligible for these premium subsidies. Uh, there's some uh, money for home and community-based healthcare services through Medicaid. And there's uh, a couple smaller things like investing in the healthcare workforce and um, extending hearing benefits into Medicare for the first time. Roughly, what does that all add up to? So it all adds up to about $330 billion. And and we can get into the the details of some of those when they phase in and phase out and and, uh, and all that. Tori, you want to jump in with a question? (laughs) Um, Well, we we talked about the expenditures uh, that they're going to, the the programs that they plan to spend money on that are healthcare related. Are there any pay-fors in the legislation that would help offset the cost of those new expenditures? Yeah, we, we think the, that there's about $325 billion of offsets, uh, and those are mostly in the prescription drug reforms um, from the legislation. So they're changing the formula for seniors' benefits in Medicare Part D. Uh, they're actually capping out-of-pocket costs for the first time. And to go along with that, um, there are um, provisions that are going to limit the amount of price increases to the rate of inflation for prescription drugs, both in Medicare and in commercial prescription drug um, prices. Uh, And then they're also doing a a very small program of Medicare negotiation on prescription drug prices that's limited in scope, only uh, 10 drugs to start when when it kicks in, and limited in the type of uh, prescription drugs that those negotiations um, can take place over. Uh, but um, it is kind of like a starting point for thinking about negotiation. And I think it's important that the inflation rebates and negotiation are in there because everything else is increasing um, costs. So it's important to have something that's um, keeping them um, at, at bay to at least a small degree. Are there... Um... Again, before we get into some of the uh, details of uh, of these provisions, which are the ones that might be the most contentious? I'm not asking you for an opinion on whether they're good or bad, just as, as you see this um, uh, coming through the Senate. Uh, are, are any of these provisions um, more contentious than others? I mean, I think the prescription drug um, pricing is going to be the big challenge in the Senate for for really two reasons. One, in the House, it was kind of the last deal uh, that was made. Um, Originally, um, President Biden, when he released this framework um, in in the fall, uh, prescription drug pricing was ultimately left out of it because they just couldn't come to an agreement um, among House Democrats. At the last minute, um, something on pricing was added back in. Uh, for the inflation rebates and the negotiation. Um, And uh, I think it's likely that there will be some um, in the Senate. Certainly, the interest groups are fighting like heck to um, reopen that um, provision. Uh, So whether it lasts through all of the interest group negotiation with members of the Senate um, is, I think, a big question. And then also, Uh, As I'm sure your audience is now intimately familiar with, the Senate parliamentarian uh, will also have a say 
on which of these pricing provisions will be acceptable um, through the budget reconciliation process. And um, aside from the drug pricing provisions, are there any policies in, in the Build Back Better Act that are designed to lower healthcare costs? Unfortunately, there aren't. Um, uh, much to our consternation, we um, really hoped that they would use the opportunity if they're adding benefits to Medicare, like the hearing benefits, uh, or um, doing this um, redesign of Part D, that we would be able to get a little bit more um, cost savers for healthcare in there. Um, but um, that that didn't happen, at, certainly as of now. Um, and uh, I guess the good way to look at that is we still have a lot of healthcare savings out there on the table for us um, after this bill is passed uh, going forward. And, um, you know, we're always looking to lower healthcare costs and there are lots of things we could still do. Uh, so they have not taken those uh, items off the table yet. Yeah, well, I guess that's a, a good way to, 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 to look at it. Um, Tori? Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you a quick question before we dive in into some of the the details. You know, one of the overarching questions that 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 we've sort of been scratching our our heads about. Um, there's been a big push, especially by Senator Sanders and a couple of of people who follow his politics, to expand uh, Medicare coverage for things like vision and hearing and things like that. And I I think we can we can all agree that 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 Medicare coverage in those areas is is perhaps very poor. But we can also, I think, postulate that there is both a right way and a wrong way to expand uh, coverage for, for, for Medicare. Josh, if you were designing a program that would accommodate some of the things that Senator Sanders and, and uh, uh, his followers are asking for, um, how, how would, what, what are your thoughts? What would be your policy recommendations to, to lawmakers and how they satisfy this, this demand for increased benefits, but at the same time, make sure that, that, that Medicare is, is soundly financed? Uh, well, I, I mean, I could talk about this for hours and hours uh, because it's something I've thought a lot about, but I think the main thing is we already have a program in Medicare that provides vision, hearing, and dental coverage. It's called Medicare Advantage. About 40% of Medicare enrollees are gonna be uh, enrolled in Medicare Advantage. And in those plans, about 90% of those cover all three of those things. Uh, so this option is already available um, to uh, the Medicare population. And I think we can presume that the people that desperately need those coverages often pick Medicare Advantage plans just to obtain those. Um, and the biggest problem here with the discussion over Build Back Better and, and which um, expansions should be included is that there was no acknowledgement of this. And, and so two of my big pet peeves here were that we were talking about adding those benefits into what we call traditional Medicare, um, but we weren't going to reduce payments to the private plans that already provide those benefits. And that is a very expensive thing to pay for benefits that are already being covered in those private plans. We were still going to send those private plans even more money um, even though they're already covering it with the money that they get. And um, if you actually took that kind of additional bonus payment um, out of these Medicare Advantage plans, you could reduce the cost of expansion by half. Um, 
So we probably could have expanded all three of those things and taken them out of the Medicare Advantage payments, and it would have cost about the same as just doing the hearing expansion is costing right now. Um, so that was my big disappointment. And then the other thing, which I think Concord has been talking about for many, many years, is that Part B premiums for seniors do not cover all of Medicare. Your premium covers about 25%, um, which you know is a great benefit for seniors. But here we were talking about adding these provisions onto Medicare without charging a premium for them. So the hearing benefits are being added to Medicare, but the cost of those benefits are not being added into the calculation of premiums. And that also um, makes no sense. So those are kind of, if we're just going to conventionally um, expand Medicare to include these benefits, at least we should be including them in the premium calculation, and we shouldn't be paying the private plans in Medicare Advantage for providing those benefits since they already do it with the money that they already get. Mm. Yeah, that seems like if you're going to design something to make it the most um, maximally inefficient, <laughs> expensive way to do something, uh, that's how you would do it. What, what was the rationale behind that? Bob, if I knew, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I well, mean, I mean, I guess, I guess, it's let me a one word something. answer. Lobby. Was, it, well, well, yeah, I mean, I guess it's is that you, you can't interest. you can't ask anybody for anything uh, these days, even if you're enhancing a benefit, which is, it just strikes me. I mean, particularly on, if it's going to be part of the Medicare Part B program, but it's not part of the Medicare B premiums, that that doesn't make any sense to me. Is that a, is that a horrible precedent? I mean, everything's a horrible precedent. <laughs> um, but you're right. Like, I, I don't even, yeah, I mean, it. You, you know, maybe there's some political difficulty if Medicare Part B premiums go up, but they wouldn't be going up by very much. And you would be able to tell seniors that for this very small incremental increase in your Part B premium, you now have dental, hearing, and vision benefits. Mm. I mean, it seems like a fair trade. And so the, the, I was thinking that maybe the Medicare Advantage plans would maybe lose some people because they would not have that advantage of having a, a, a hearing benefit. It would be one of the advantages that they would have over traditional Medicare. But I guess that maybe if they're getting paid for it, uh, something well, they... I mean, the thing that worries me is that we're already overpaying Medicare Advantage plans for covering beneficiaries. We're paying more to the pl private plans than we do to cover people in traditional Medicare. And um, this is gonna be a, a huge fiscal problem um, going forward. We already know that Medicare is unsustainable and this is going to just make that happen even faster uh, than it would otherwise because we're just continuing to pay private plans more uh, per person and the costs per person are growing faster than in traditional Medicare. And, and that situation is untenable. It's not, it's not you know, directly related to Build Back Better, but it is something that we all should be worried about. And this was some really small opportunity to do a little bit more parity uh, between traditional Medicare and Medicare Advantage. And I think the politicians were um, afraid to do anything that would um, even remotely touch Medicare Advantage, which that is a very bad precedent going forward. So this brings up a 
the next question, given that, you know, there's sort of a right way and a, and a wrong way to expand uh, Medicare. There's also a right way and a wrong way to provide more healthcare benefits for people in general. Um, the Build Back Better Act uh, includes, we talked about a number of, of healthcare provisions, um, and both new programs, but new offsets. Um, and we talked about how just as far as the bill is drafted, the new part in the new spending is about equal with the new revenues. But there's some details underneath that, that, that top line that really, really matter. Um, in a couple of other places in the bill, they've been using things like uh, 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 you know, budget gimmicks to reduce uh, the appearance of the cost of a, of a certain uh, provision. For example, only continuing a program for a year, two years, three years, et cetera. Now there's, there's some of that in this bill with respect to the healthcare provisions, right? Yeah, the main thing I would point to is that the Affordable Care Act enhancements are only extended through 2025, um, and the Medicaid um, coverage um, for those in non-expansion states is only extended to 2025. And this does have a pretty dramatic effect on the quote-unquote cost um, of those provisions, because through 2025, they cost about $120 billion, but if you had them extended throughout the entire 10-year budget window, the cost would be above $400 billion. Um, and it's pretty clear that um, members uh, of Congress that are in favor of those provisions would like them to uh, be made permanent. Uh, but this was a case where they just weren't willing to offset the cost of those for longer. So they set them to expire in 2025. And, and we do consider that a budget gimmick. Mm -hmm. So, the, Go ahead, Bob. Um, well, I don't want to change. I, I wanted to stick with the ACA subsidies. Just um, uh, those seem to be extensions of the uh, the American Rescue Plan, which was the COVID relief bill. Uh, and then could you briefly describe what they do? I mean, they, they adjust um, who's eligible and, and what income caps might be for premium subsidies. Yeah, the, the main thing they do is they make subsidies more affordable across the board uh, for those between 100 and 400 percent of poverty. Um, they have uh, more generous subsidies. And then above 400 percent of poverty, the amount of your income that goes towards health care is uh, reduced from about nine and a half percent to eight and a half percent. And after that, um, you get um you know, your, your costs covered basically. Uh, so the idea of make it, making those enhancements is to draw more people into uh, the subsidy program, uh, which, um, you know, anytime you can uh, have more people coming in for coverage, you're tending now to draw healthier and mm -hmm. less expensive people, which makes the marketplace uh, more sustainable and less expensive across the board. Anytime you pass a large, um, piece of legislation and an expansion of health insurance like the Affordable Care Act did, it makes sense to come back after um, you know, 10, 15 years and see where the design could use some enhancements. And honestly, I don't think anyone quibbles with that. I think the quibble is with if you want to do it, you need to be willing to pay yeah. for it. Uh, and even more than that, you should be concerned about healthcare costs overall and, and be putting some things in that could help over the long term lower the costs of healthcare. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. 
this is your host, Bob Bixby. Uh, Tori Gorman and I are talking with Josh Gordon of the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget about the health care provisions in the Build Back Better Act. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Josh Gordon, Director of Health Policy for the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. And we're discussing the, uh, the health care provisions in the Build Back Better Act. Um, Tori, we were, uh, we were talking about some of the peekaboo provisions here that sort of spring <laughs> to life and then uh, disappear. Uh, and I think you had a, a follow-up question about that. Yeah, sure. I just, I wanted to take us back up to 65,000 feet again and talk about so the, sort of the bigger picture here when it comes to the health provisions that are in the Build Back Better Act. You know, we talked about how on one hand, we've got about $330 billion worth of new healthcare spending. A good chunk of that though is only temporary uh, through what I believe 2025. Um, lots of other things happening in 2025. We'll talk about that in a second. But then we've got offsets that help pay for that new spending, about $325 billion worth of offsets. Those are permanent, right? So in 2025, when these, these very popular healthcare provisions expire, Congress lawmakers are going to have to come up with a whole new set of pay-fors for this, aren't they? And they're going to have to do it at a time when major provisions of the 2017 tax cut are also expiring. All of the, the individual income tax cuts are expiring. So we've got a whole bunch of stuff happening in 2025 that is really, really popular. And we've got to find, find a way to pay for all of this stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that that is, I think, that's the big question mark still left from this bill. And I, I, I mean, I think it's intentional. Um, I think the um, idea is to have everything culminate in 2025 and then have some kind of um, deal to trade off healthcare provisions versus non health, you know, tax related provisions. Um, and, you know, there are always ways to pay for healthcare provisions because we have a huge healthcare cost um, problem. Um, there's a lot of provisions that we can do to lower health care costs over the long term. Um, my Health Savers Initiative at CRFB um, mm -hmm. always uh, looks for interesting ideas uh, and provides scores for how much they would save. Uh, and, and I guess the hope is that that 25 uh, expiration offers kind of an action forcing event where uh, we can get members to pay for the things that they want over the long term or let things expire that they aren't willing to pay for. Um, it's, it's the same um, trade-off that, that happens all the time. And they're putting it up to 2025, but that doesn't mean that we should lose hope. It means that that is yet another opportunity to try and get healthcare savings uh, into legislation. Yeah, well, I mean, that would certainly be the hope because they're using, I mean, you know, one of the things that gets lost here is that there's a, an opportunity cost in the sense that there's, there are, there are trade-offs here. There are pay-fors, particularly in the prescription drug area, that have long been on the table uh, that could be used to offset new spending. But, but uh, I mean, to be used to offset spending that was already on the table that wasn't paid for. And so now it's being used to fund a new source of uh, spending. And so even if you, even if it all comes true, you're still not doing anything to address the underlying problem 
uh, that we already had. Uh, are, are there some ways that um, that uh, the prescription drug pricing could be enhanced further from what they've done now? Yeah, I think there are really two main ways to think about it. One is you could make the negotiation from the Health and Human Services Secretary uh, stronger. Um, right now, it's pretty limited. Um, the number of drugs is limited. The amount of discounts that they're allowed to negotiate is limited. And the length of time um, after a drug has been on the market is limited. And you could change um, all of those things just for perspective. Um, when the House passed their prescription drug negotiation bill um, a couple years ago, uh, the CBO said it would save about $460 billion for negotiation. Um, in this bill, we're saving about $70 or $80 billion from negotiation. So there's clearly a lot more savings that can be done on that end. And perhaps after we experiment with this for a couple of years and we realize that the drug industry is still profitable, uh, maybe members will be willing to go a little further there. Uh, but then there are also other areas of drug pricing that still remain out there. Um, we, we have hardly any competition in Medicare Part B for drugs. Um, so we think you could save a fair amount of drugs by opening up um, some competition, especially in um, drug areas where there are uh, multiple drugs that treat the same condition. Um, that's something that we've worked on at the Health Savers Initiative. And, and then there, you know, there are a lot of other ideas. Um, one of them that, that I've heard floating around the Hill is to in some way tie um, drug monopolies to the value that we get from those drugs. Um, I think that's a real interesting idea um, and uh, is definitely worth uh, members exploring and policymakers exploring. Um, so those, I mean, those are just a few, but we certainly have uh, more that we can do um, on prescription drugs and obviously in healthcare costs in general. Mm -hmm. I think one of the hardest things about uh, addressing the, the the high cost of prescription drugs and the the, the rapidly growing cost of, of prescription drugs is that the pharmaceutical industry is really good at saying, if you mess with repayment or if you mess with, you know, like, for example, drug price negotiations, et cetera, um, we're going to stop innovating. Or if you have cancer, you're not going to be able to get the life-saving drugs that you need. I mean, that those ads go up on TV immediately. It is really easy for the pharmaceutical companies to message, no, stop, don't. And it's really hard for policymakers and lawmakers to message, yes, this is okay, this is going to work, this is going to help you, um, when, especially when it comes to prescription drugs. I get, uh, how, how, how do we get past this? Uh, I mean, I, I think we get past it because um, members of Congress know better <laughs> and um, they don't have to fall for this. Um, and, uh, you know, we're not talking about nationalizing the prescription drug industry. Uh, we're talking about taking um, a little bit of haircut and profits or uh, tying those products uh, and their pricing to the value we're getting from them. Um, Bob and I have talked on this podcast before about um, the Alzheimer's drug um, in Medicare that has hardly any benefit and is super expensive. Um, and so clearly there's something wrong with the drug approval process. Um, that drug um, was approved despite all of these things at a very high cost. Um, and I don't think um, there's 
there's too much evidence that if we stop approving drugs that don't work, um, drug companies won't invest in finding drugs that do work. Um, that doesn't really um, make much sense to me. So, um, I mean, I, I just think it's a matter of um, members of Congress knowing better. Plus, um, this was a great opportunity to do something for seniors on drug pricing. We capped out-of-pocket spending for seniors uh, a great carrot um, to get more customers for the drug industry, uh, ensure seniors can afford their medicine. And so it was very ripe time to also include some things that dealt with drug pricing um, to pair the carrots and the sticks. Mm -hmm. um, uh, unfortunately, we could have had a $450 billion stick instead of a $70 billion stick. Uh, but I mean, that's the kind of thing that we look for going forward. And if we're really concerned about things like vaccines and special cases like we uh, have experienced with, with the COVID vaccines, there are other ways to incentivize that that don't involve paying hugely high inflated prices for all drugs across the board, regardless of value. Um, that really is a very inefficient way uh, to incentivize this sort of investment, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, one way, one reason for doing this in an incremental way, starting out slowly, is kind of, as you mentioned, that it may be that if we see that the first tranche of Part B drugs and Part D drugs aren't causing a catastrophic decline in the pharmaceutical industry, then people sort of get used to it. Maybe you can go a little bit further. The other thing that I worry about, too, is you get, you know, people... Uh, you know, not wanting the government to interfere with the decisions of their physicians and and whether or not people can accept a, uh, you know, if Medicare does negotiations, it's, it's, it's going to have to be able to limit the drugs. It's going to have to say no to some drugs that, that you know, wouldn't be evidence-based approved. Whereas now there's kind of an open-ended um almost a requirement that Medicare uh, reimburse for any particular drug. So I worry a little bit that there might be a, a backlash from patients who might not get a drug that they're taking that maybe there's no evidence for it, but they want it. Well, again, I mean, there, there are ways to design policies that safeguard against that. And, you know, most of the policies that we've looked at for um, increasing competition in Part B and changing the pricing uh, all involve appeals processes where if a physician thinks a specific drug is the best one uh, that's most indicated, there are ways to design appeals processes to make sure that people aren't kept from getting the drug that their physician thinks works best for them. And again, like that sort of targeted appeals process is a much more efficient um, way to handle drug pricing than uh, large kind of across the board inflation. Speaking about large across the board things, Tori, you've got a, a procedural question to raise. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to switch topics real quick. I might stay within healthcare, but I want to move away from the Build Back Better Act for a second. Um, earlier this year, uh, Congress passed uh, what we affectionately refer to as ARPA, the American Rescue Plan Act. That was the big COVID relief bill, uh, emergency relief bill. And one of the things that bill did was delay a planned Medicare sequester. One of the artifacts of the 2011 Budget Control Act uh, was that we would implement uh, a small Medicare sequester annually. And uh, obviously it probably doesn't make good sense to sequester 
Medicare uh, in the middle of a pandemic. So the sequester that was supposed to take effect earlier this year was delayed to December 31st, 2021. So starting January 1, 2022, unless Congress does anything, that Medicare sequester is going to happen. And I guess the question I have for you is twofold. Uh, Number one, who does the Medicare sequester affect? Does it affect beneficiaries or does it affect other people? Um, And two, uh, what do you think is going to happen with the Medicare sequester? Is Congress going to extend it again now that we're looking at uh, uh, a new variant? um, Or do you think that they will, will let it happen? Well, let me start by saying I really hope they let it happen um, because um, I think it's pretty clear um, that business really has gotten um, back to normal um, in terms of um, most hospitals and most um, doctors. Um, And that's who the sequester impacts. It impacts hospital payments and physician payments. Um, And in addition, I guess I should mention that in that um, in, in some of the initial COVID relief bills, we also passed a 3.7% increase for doctor uh, payments. Mm-hmm. So in addition to canceling the 2%, which hospitals and doctors had gotten used to, it had been in place for about a decade. Um, so it's not even, I mean, calling it a sequester at this point is really uh, in some ways a misnomer. We had just kind of reset the base for physician and hospital payments. And then in addition to like postponing that for a, a year, we did this 3.75% bonus payment. And um, doctors are now lobbying on the Hill, um, mm-hmm. not just to keep the Medicare sequester away, but also um, to get this provider bonus um, renewed, which, uh, and, and they're calling this a large cut, a five and a half percent cut in, in doctor payments starting on December or starting on January 1st. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really a crazy way uh, to look at it. Maybe you could argue the sequester is still a cut, um, but arguing that not having the 3.75% bonus renewed is a cut is like every American that got a stimulus check saying their taxes are being increased next year because they're not getting a check again. Um, it was designed to be a one-time bonus. We should keep it at a one-time bonus. And it, it, it really is infuriating um, that this argument is getting a lot of traction uh, on the Hill. There was a letter signed by 150 members of the House of Representatives. And, and really, I just don't understand why they're falling for the rhetoric. Um, it's just have you, so have you ever heard Have you ever heard of the Notch Babies? <laughs> of course. No, Bob. no, no, no. no. <laughs> My Aunt Abby always claimed she was a Notch Baby and she had her Social Security payments stolen from her. Yeah. Yeah. No. My, my uncle. My uncle was uh, in the same category. So, but we don't want to get into that. We'll get all sorts of hate mail from. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it is funny sometimes that uh, that a, a bonus that is not renewed or was given mistakenly or something is suddenly turned into a savage cut. Well, um, most people I, that are that that work for a living they understand the difference between a bonus and a raise, right? A bonus yeah. is a one-time wahoo. Great. Yeah. Well, versus a raise is something that's permanent. And I think what Congress did was give, you know, Medicare providers, hospitals and doctors a one time bonus for all the hard work during uh, COVID. um, And now they want to make it permanent. 
We're going to have to leave it there uh, at uh, at this point. Um, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I have been talking with Josh Gordon uh, with the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. And we've been talking about the health care provisions of the affordable, not, not of the Affordable Care Act, of the Build Back Better Act. And Tori and I are going to be right back after these short messages with a concluding segment. Josh, thank you for joining us this week. Thanks for having me again. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm joined on this segment by uh, Tori Gorman, who's uh, still with us, and our chief economist, Steve Robinson. Um, We're going to just take a look at things that are coming up uh, this week. Tori, Congress has got their plate full. I mean, they're coming back from Thanksgiving with with not an empty plate, but a full plate. Full plate. So now Congress uh, has an insane amount of, of, of things to do on their list of things to do on their honey-do list. Um, it is insanely long. This week, uh, the Senate's going to be addressing the National Defense Reauthorization Bill, which basically reauthorizes all of our, our programs that, that fund the military. Uh, December 3rd, which is Friday, uh, the government runs out of money unless Congress can figure out some sort of stopgap uh, solution. Uh, rumors are that they're going to pass some sort of continuing resolution that will fund the government through mid to late January. We'll see. Hopefully that'll happen. Um, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said, hey, Congress, December 15th, we're going to have issues with the debt limit. Y'all need to start talking about that again. So that that's that's something that they've got to, to talk about. Um, there are a number of really key tax provisions that expire at the end of this calendar year that are really important to people. You've got business tax extenders, which is sort of an annual rite of passage in Congress. Uh, but we've also got things that are important to individuals, um, things like the enhanced child tax credit that was part of legislation passed earlier this year, the COVID relief bill. You know, that was just a one year provision of the, of the expanded and enhanced child tax credit that is now paying out monthly stipends to families and they've come to depend on that money. OK, they've got to figure out what are they going to do about that? Um, payroll tax deferral. A lot of small businesses, uh, we gave them uh, the permission to defer their payroll taxes on employees if they kept their employees on payroll uh, during the the coronavirus rather than laying their workers off. Uh, Well, that payroll tax deferral ends at the end of this calendar year. But if we're heading into uh, another COVID winter with a new variant running around, do we need to to, to maintain that that, that tax deferral? I don't know. Um, But that's something they're going to have to talk about as well. Um, We've got you know, sequesters at the potential sequesters at the end of this year. I mean, that's that's really inside baseball, but those numbers are not small. And I sincerely doubt that lawmakers want to see those uh, actually happen. So they're going to have to address those as well. So it is one hell of a busy, busy, busy month for Congress and not a lot of time to get stuff done. Quite a cornucopia of uh, of of economic issues. Um some good signs, some bad signs, some uncertain signs. Uh, what does it look like to you right now? Well, I, I think I had made the comment some weeks ago about the economy being on a roller coaster, and I, I think we're still we're still there. I mean, we've had some pretty good numbers on the unemployment side. Unemployment claims from uh, from last week were down to an all time low. Uh, but then, of course, the GDP number came out. You know, real GDP was about 2.1 percent, which is you know modest. But the but the nominal GDP number was up around 8 percent, which means obviously the difference is, is the 6 percent inflation that people have been talking about. Uh, 
So, you know, inflation pressures are still with us. Central banks around the world are scratching their heads trying to decide, you know, is it time to pull the trigger yet? Do we start? I, I noticed, for example, South Korea just increased their, their uh, interest rate up to 1%. Um, so, you know, we're seeing the central banks, you know, getting nervous about, there was some talk from the Fed minutes uh, about, you know, whether they're going to, whether they're going to expedite the end of the uh, bond buying program that they've had ongoing now since the pandemic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a real mixed picture. Labor market looks good. The economy appears to be healthy. But then, of course, we've got the new uh, COVID variant that has reared its head that uh, potentially could cause another shutdown or a travel ban. Um, you know, there's just a lot of uncertainty out there. Uh, everybody's hoping for the best, but uh, sometimes our, our best expectations are not always met with, uh, you know, the, the news that we would like to see. Yeah, I, and I think people are, um, I don't want to say people are, are, are freaking out over it, but there's a, there's a kind of a ripple of uncertainty that is, uh you know, affecting the the political environment as well as the policy environment. I I can't remember a time that things could be more uncertain for all of the reasons that uh, Tory mentioned. You get fiscal policy up in the air, and they don't they're not really sure what they're up against because of uh, uh, because of the economy and and all the various things. I mean, you know, you start thinking about if there's a too, too soon to speculate, but let's speculate a little bit because the, the markets are already doing it, is that, you know, if you had another variant, I mean, just the economic effects of going through that again, uh, wow, if you start getting into, you know, more, uh, more programs to what, stimulate the economy? <laughs> um, yeah. Presumably, Congress would uh, do a, a repeat of, of last year. They would, you know, if, if, if there's another shutdown and unemployment, you know, shoots up, there's going to be a, a real strong pressure to, to do extended unemployment benefits, you know, some sort of stimulus payments. You know, I, I think that the, the, the tried and true uh, policies that we've seen in the past, there's going to be a desire to, to go there. But the new element this time is that inflation has already, you know, reared its head. And, you know, there is a real concern that those policies, while from a, from a you know, a, a human perspective, you know, you want to provide assistance, but, you know, paying people to stay home uh, is only going to add to the inflationary pressure because, I mean, you know, by definition, you've got, uh, you know, we're propping up demand by providing the government stimulus payments, but we're suppressing supply by essentially paying people to stay home amidst the pandemic. And so you get a lot of cross pressures there and, and we're at a, a, different, a different place in the economy in terms of, of inflation uh, compared to where we were last year. I mean, it, it's, it's a very different situation. So it's hard, it's hard to know whether you know, doing the same thing again is, in fact, the right choice. And yeah, I mean, politically, it's difficult because, you know, the the things that were probably the most inflationary were the most popular of right. the uh, of the rescue plans 
And so the flip side of it is that the inflation that it's uh, kicked off um, or at least contributed to is is one of the most politically deadly things that can that can break out. So it's it's, um, you know, it, it really if 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 the the gamble that uh, inflation is going to be transitory doesn't work out. That's a real, real problem, <laughs> not just economically, but politically. Yeah, I mean, you have the Federal Reserve working at cross purposes. I mean, for the last year, Congress was providing fiscal stimulus and the Fed was providing the, the monetary stimulus. And if inflation gets out of hand, the, the, the Fed's going to have to put on the brakes and start raising interest rates. And that's going to make it all the much harder for the economy to get back on its feet. Troy, do you have any words of wisdom to take us out this week? No words of wisdom. It's just that I think the next two, two and a half weeks, as we start to learn more about this new variant and what uh, kinds of protections we do and do not have uh, based on current boosters and vaccines um, will really be the the prime driver of what the economy looks like this winter time. Yeah, I think it's going to be uh, just a time to, to stay tuned um, to uh, to all this because there's, there's certainly a lot going on. It's not at all clear uh, in which direction things are, are headed. So uh, with that, we'll we'll wrap up for this week. I want to thank uh, our guest, Josh Gordon, from the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget for walking us through the health care provisions of the Build Back Better Act. And uh, thanks to Tori and Steve for uh, helping us speculate a little bit about uh, what's going to happen now that Congress is back and they have a lot on their plate. Uh, this is Bob Bixby. I'm your host. Tune in again next week when I'll be back with another edition of Facing the Future.